0: But the power of a letter, I've been thinking about that for a couple of weeks, the power of a letter. When I was a child and a a boy, we grew up, grew up on the south side of Chicago. And after my mom and dad got divorced, we really bounced around a lot, moved from place to place. And there on the south side, apartment to apartment, seemed like every month or so we would move. I went to Uh, We counted up one time, Minda, and I forget now, I I think I could safely say 17 different public schools from kindergarten to 10th grade, just moving around all the time. I remember when I was uh, young and in grade school, before junior high, I was living um, right on Cicero Avenue. There was was an apartment there. It's still there. There was a limousine shop, limousine store, and then next to it was a bar, and above the bar were some apartments. And I was living in the apartments above the bar. And I would go outside with some friends, and I would play a a game that we would call Off the Wall. You remember Off the Wall, Brother Woosley took a tennis ball, you threw it off the wall, and the first one to catch it got so many points. And if it bounced one time, you got so many points. We'd play that game. And while we were playing that game, there was a, a girl who lived across the alley there. And her name was Yvette. I don't remember her last name, but her first name was Yvette. And the first time that I saw her, it's just a, a, a boy, uh, maybe 10 years old, 11 years old. I, I, I started to like her. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Started to like her. And like became uh, salt, uh, uh, stalking. <laughs> and, uh, no, but... One time, she saw us playing off the wall, and I'm telling you, I became like a baseball all-star when she was out there, but, but, but I did. I, I liked her, and it was just innocent. I was walking to school one day, and I told my, my best friend, Sammy. I said, Sammy, I like Yvette. Can you keep that to you? I like her. Can you hold that to yourself? Don't tell anybody. He said, oh, I won't tell anybody. <laughs> he, he lasted till lunchtime. <laughs> Most public schools, you yeah, have those long lunch tables and Sammy told somebody and I saw somebody tell somebody and all of a sudden you just, I sat there in horror, I, I watched as everybody started to, to, to realize and they were told that, that Abdel likes Yvette and, um, and that was awkward. Remember a day or two later, she knew that I liked her and a day or two later she came up to me in the hallway and she handed me a, a letter, more of a note. And this is what it said. It said, dear Abdel, I thought, oh man, she knows my name. <laughs> you know, every step that I take. No, but I thought, I thought oh man, dear Abdel. She said, she said, I think you are nice. I thought, that's right. My heart's beating, I thought, oh man. She said, I think you are cute. And I thought, this girl is not only pretty, she is intelligent as she is. <laughs> And then she wrote, true story. She wrote, but I could never like somebody who lives on top of a bar. And I remember, I remember reading that and, and just the, the devastating effect, really, and I mean that, just some people thought it was funny, but uh, you're obviously used to rejection, but no, the, the devastating effect that just a few words on a piece of paper had the power of a letter. Years later, I was in church and, and saved and growing in grace and uh, uh, growing there at Landmark, or at um, I'm sorry, at Jordan Baptist Church in Burbank, Illinois. And they announced a meeting at Hiles Anderson College. i had never been to Hiles Anderson before. And they said, we're going to go to Hiles Anderson there was some conference. I don't remember what conference it was. And they said, we're going to hear Brother Hiles preach. And so we loaded up a bus and we uh, went to the college and we got into the auditorium there and the atmosphere was electric and the doors opened and the people came out and I had never been to the college before. I had never heard Brother Hiles preach. The people came out and everybody was cheering and then the door closed and there was like a collective, oh, and I found out that Brother Hiles' plane was delayed <laughs> and, and he wasn't there to preach. They had somebody fill his spot. The man who filled his spot preached on the subject of prayer. And I went down to the altar that night and I. I prayed, and the sermon was something along the lines of uh, prayer is asking and receiving, and no, it wasn't John R. Rice, but it was somebody who was preaching and just getting answers to prayer. And I can remember being a bus kid, and, and it was really bothering me, Brother Woosley. I didn't have a suit. I didn't have uh, all the nice clothes that everybody else wore to church. And so I went down to the altar, and I prayed that God would provide a suit and I remember this man saying that, uh, don't broadcast your prayers, and God hears, and God can answer. And boy, just with the faith of a child, I prayed that God would provide a suit. I went home, and I was excited. Everybody on the bus was kind of upset that their favorite speaker didn't preach. But I was excited. I was, I was happy that, just kind of giddy at the fact that God certainly was going to provide a suit soon. A day or two went by, and maybe a few days, and soon there was a knock in the apartment door, and Brother Bill, my bus captain, uh, came in, and, and uh, he had a big bag, and I opened up the door, he said, Abdel, he said, uh, we've collected some clothes for you, and he had dress shirts in there, and he had ties, and he had uh, all kinds of things in there for me, and, uh, and I thanked him, and I don't know why I did it, but I was just kind of excited, and, and I thanked him, and I shut the door, and I walked away, and I thought, but there's no suit. And he knocked on the door again I opened up the door and he had a J.C. penny bag and he said, Abdel, you slammed the door on me. He said, I have one more thing. And he, he handed me a, a suit, my very first suit. He said, now inside the pocket there's something and, and I want you to have it. And he said, here's a suit and I want you to have it. Man, I was so excited that, that God answered my prayer. I, t- I tried the suit on, I felt inside there was a letter. And the letter said this, Dear Abdel, written for my bus captain, Dear Abdel, I love you. I believe in you. I believe that God is going to use you someday, and I want to buy your first suit. Love, Brother Bill. You know, I don't remember the color of that suit. I don't remember how long I wore it. I don't remember a lot about the suit, but I remember the words of that letter. They're burned into my brain. I could. Remember the power of just a few simple words on a piece of paper. Yeah. So I began thinking when pastor asked me to preach on the power of a letter, my mind just kind of trailed off thinking this way, if, if Jesus were here and if he could write a letter to our church, if he could write a letter to our church right here, First Baptist Church in Hammond, what would he write? What would he say? My mind went to Revelation chapter number 1. Would you turn there? Revelation chapter number 1. Just a few moments tonight in the Bible. Of course, in Revelation, Jesus is writing. He writes seven letters. Seven letters to seven specific churches. These letters were read and uh, by the churches. These letters were specific. And though they were written years ago, I believe they apply to us today, and there's one letter in particular that I believe uh, could be written to our church here. Revelation chapter number one, Jesus is speaking. Don't you love it when Jesus is speaking? (laughs) Hey, there's something about knowing that God is talking. There's something precious about his voice. As a matter of fact, it's, it's, a, it's great to know that the Lord is speaking. That's why we come to church. We come to church in hopes that Jesus would speak to us. You know, the greatest judgment, one of the greatest judgments of God is the judgment of silence when God is no longer speaking. Saul experienced that. Samson experience that. It's, it's when Jesus is no longer speaking. You no longer hear his voice. Hey, if you're here tonight, and it's been a long time since you've heard the voice of God, let me encourage you, friend, uh, to find a place and to fix that. Because Jesus is speaking. He's speaking to these churches. Look at what he says in verse 18, he says, I am he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. A nice little outline of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter one, uh, the things which were. Revelations chapter two and three, the things which are. And then Revelation chapter four, through the end of the book, uh, the things which are to come. He says in verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. And unto the angel, chapter 2, verse 1, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Listen to what Jesus is saying. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how that thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars." and has borne, and has patience, and for my name's sake, uh, has labored, and has not fainted. By the way, church, for sake of time, I'm just going to run through this. Jesus is speaking, and and there's something about when Jesus speaks. When Jesus speaks, he speaks authoritatively. He, He speaks with an authority. The Bible says in verse number 18, he says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Jesus is speaking with authority. You ever have somebody correct you or or try to fix something and you you take a step back and say, man, who are you? Well, Jesus, when he speaks to us, he speaks authoritatively. He says, I am he that was dead and is alive and have the keys to, to hell and the grave. He speaks authoritatively, he speaks personally. Chapter two, verse number one, he he says to this church, he says, uh, I hold the seven stars in his right hand and who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Hey friend, uh, Jesus is not far off tonight. The Bible says where two or three are gathered together uh, in his name, he's there in the midst. And so he is here and he is speaking authoritatively, he is speaking personally, he is speaking intelligently. He says in verse number three or verse number two, he says, I know thy works and thy labor. He's speaking intelligently. You you ever, you ever, uh, you ever have somebody correct you and they don't even know you. I can remember once at a camp I was just a teenager at camp, and there was a counselor who, who uh, I got in a little scuffle with, and he was giving a devotion the next day, and he stood up in our cabin, and he wasn't from our church, he's from another church, but he stood up in our cabin, and he, he began preaching to everyone, but at me. How many of you know what I'm talking about? It was, it was a, he was just getting it off his chest, he was upset at me, and, and he, he said things in such a way where everybody knew he was talking about me, and, but but he didn't say my name. And I remember sitting there and being so upset, saying, he doesn't even know me. Friend, when Jesus speaks, he speaks intelligently. He knows your works. He knows the church. He he knows who we are and he knows not only what can be seen on the outside but he knows what's happening on the inside he is speaking and if he could write a letter to our church what would he say what would he say authoritatively and personally and intelligently I believe he would commend us like he did this church look at what he said he said uh, I know thy works Uh, he said in verse number two he said you're a working church he said you're a church that labors he said, you're a patient church. In other words, you've been at this a long time. He says, you're a church that stands for right. Thou canst not bear them which are evil. He said, you're a church that uh, endures sound doctrine. He says that about this church in Ephesus. He says, you're a church that has borne." In verse number uh, uh, three. That means they've withstood in a dark time. That means they held up under pressure. They had born. This church was in Ephesus. Ephesus was full of idolatry. and, And this church stood true in a dark time. And I believe if Jesus were here, he could say that about our church. Look at this. He said you have the right motive. Verse number three, he says, for my name's sake, you've labored. You know, friend, I believe that at our church, I, I really do believe that we do what we do for the Lord. Believe that. I believe you, I, I look at these plants and these, they, I believe the vast majority of you spent a $10 bill and said a prayer at an altar tonight. Not for outward appearance, but I believe you did it for the Lord. Amen. And that's what this church in Ephesus, they were the same way. They were a working church. They were a laboring church, a patient church, a church that stood for right, a church with sound doctrine, a church that had held up under pressure, a church with the right motive, and a church that would not quit. He said, Thou hast not fainted. What a commendation. What a great thing to be able to say about a church. And if Jesus were here, what would he say to our church? I believe he would say those things, the commendation, but this letter not only has a commendation, there's a condemnation. And that's where I want to focus for a few minutes. Look at verse number four. He says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Church, do you see what Jesus is saying? He, he's saying, You've done all these things right. You've worked and labored and you've done it with the right motive. And you've been patient and you've upheld. You've done all these things right. But there's one thing over here that's wrong. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. On the outside, everything is good. But there's one problem, and and if you read just the language of the verse, what he's saying is all of these things that you're doing right uh, do not measure up to this one thing that you're doing wrong. I have someone against thee. And look at what he says, because thou hast left, not lost. You've left your first love. All the good that you've done is being outweighed by the fact that you have left your first love. All the labor and all the patience and all the sound doctrine, it's all good. But there's one issue that Jesus can't get past. He says you've left your first love. What is the first love? I believe there's a chronological love like the firstborn child. I believe there's a priority love like the the top love on top of all the things that you're doing. This is the first love. I believe that the love we're talking about here is a relational love, a love for God that expresses itself in a love for other people, a relational love and church, uh, the church at Ephesus had everything right on the outside, but somewhere in the midst of all of their labor, they had left off that relational love for Jesus Christ, that relational love that ought to be propelling them to do all of these works, that tender heart uh, towards God, that tear in the eye. They had left off their first love. They had become, watch this, robotic Christians. They had engaged in mechanical Christianity, doing everything right on the outside, but on the inside. There was no love, there was no passion, there was no uh, tenderness for God. Kind of like Mary and Martha. Martha had a lot going on. She was serving, she was busy, 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 but Mary only had one thing going on. She was at the feet of Jesus worshiping him and Jesus said, Martha, thou art careful about many things, but this one thing is needful and friend, if you sit here tonight and you find yourself busy and working and and laboring for God, but there's no passion for God, there's no love that is compelling you, if you used to have have it before, but you don't have it now, then there's one thing that's needful for you, and that's to get, regain your first love. A teacher teaches a class but when they have their first love, they're not just teaching a class and filling time and going over a lesson. They are investing in people. They are, they are loving Jesus and loving others. Teaching a class, a maintenance person is sweeping a floor. But when he has his first love, he's not just sweeping a floor, he's loving God. He's serving God and, and that's uh, coming out by uh, sweeping a floor. A bus driver wakes up early and he, he uh, gets ready and he, he runs his route. But when he has his first love, he He's not just running a route. He is He is serving God and loving Jesus. And that is coming out by running uh, the, the bus route. Hey, tonight, in just a few moments that we have, are you feeling robotic? Are you feeling mechanical? I know I'm supposed to be here. I know I'm supposed to teach that class. I, I know I'm supposed to come back on Wednesday night. I, hey, I don't want to live in a in a I'm supposed to Christianity. See, the first love says, I want to. I want to. You say, Brother Judah, that's me. That's me. What do I do, Brother Judah, if if I'm mechanical? What do I do, Brother Judah, if I traded, watch this, if I traded that relational love for God with just busyness? What's the the cure for that? How do I fix that in my life? I believe uh, Jesus tells us in verse number five, three steps to regain your first love. And we'll be done tonight. Three steps to regain your first love. By the way, that's been me. That has been me. Can I be transparent enough to say that there have been times where, where I've been soul winning and witnessing, preaching even, leading youth activities, but it's just, it's just robotic. I don't want to be that way. Man, I want to do what I do because there's a the love for Jesus on the inside that compels me. By the way, when that's the case, you'll do, you'll do more for God, not less. What do I do if I'm engaged in mechanical Christianity? Number one, look at what he says in verse number five. Verse number four, he says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. And here's the answer. Number one, he says, remember... Therefore, from whence thou art fallen, remember, stop and think. An interesting side note, this was a second generation church. This was a church that had been started 30 years ago by the Apostle Paul. 30 years of time, a whole generation had gone through a whole cycle of people, and now here they are. Uh, They're used to church. They're used to the busyness of the work of God. They're used to the preaching. They had grown mechanical, had left their first love, and the answer to it all was number one, remember. Stop for a moment and think. Stop and think. Hey, stop and think about the way it was. Look at what he says, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. Remember the way it was before you met Jesus. Remember the way it was when you didn't go to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. You didn't even know a church existed. It was that way in my life for the first 14 years of my life. And sometimes when I'm finding myself being mechanical and and robotic, I need to do exactly what the scripture tells me here. I need to stop and remember, remember. Remember what it was like when you didn't know the songs of God, when, when, uh, when you weren't a part of the family of God. Hey, remember where you could be tonight had not Jesus stepped into your life and made a difference. Friend, stop and think for a moment. You say, well, I've always been in church. Well, that's not been the case for your family. Somewhere along the line, there were people who were reached. They weren't always in church. And you could be, hey, you could be, let me tell you something, friend. You could be the recipient of one of the bags from last week had Jesus not made a difference in your life. Remember, remember the way it was. Remember when you thrilled at reading the Bible. Remember that? Remember when you couldn't wait to open the pages of the scripture? You remember the very first time you read your Bible through in a year? I remember that, how excited I was. Remember when you couldn't wait to pass out the next gospel track, knock on the next door. Remember when your radar was up all the time uh, looking for everybody was a prospect for Jesus. Remember. Remember when prayer was a non-negotiable for you and your heart was so tender you, you had to spend that time with God. Now there's cobwebs in the prayer closet. Hey, remember. Remember how it was. How was it for you? Remember when you couldn't wait to teach the next lesson and you looked at your class and you saw the potential and the possibilities, and now it's just filling time and maybe I can let them out early today. Come on now. Hey, remember. Stop and think. Stop and think of a time before you met the Lord. Stop and think of a time when you were zealous for God. Remember. I can remember when I first got saved, I would listen to the choir sing and they would always sing this song Take Time to Be Holy. Take time to be holy. It's one of my fondest memories growing up. Take time to be holy. And somewhere in my, my brain, I, I didn't realize they were saying take time to be holy. I thought they were saying day time to be holy. Must have been a bad choir. <laughs> no, but uh, but day time. And, and, and I thought, just I wasn't raised in church, I thought that you could only be spiritual during the day. That it only worked like when the sun was up. <laughs> and if you were going to read your Bible, you had to do it during the day. And if you were going to pray, you had to do it during the day. And if you were going to, you had to do, daytime to be holy. The nighttime, all bets were off, but the daytime to be holy. Honestly, church, there would be days where I forgot to read my Bible, and neglected it. The sun would go down, I'd be sitting in my room. My Bible would be, would be on the bed or maybe on a shelf, and I would be staring at it. Thinking that I would be violating like, some law of Scripture if I actually went and, and I could remember. I want to read it, but I can't. I missed my opportunity. Daytime, only daytime. Man, when it dawned on me that they were saying, take time to be holy, that was revolutionary. <laughs> and uh, hey, you know what? When you get to the pages of Scripture and you're in Leviticus, it's like, oh, stop and remember. Remember when the scriptures were precious to you. Remember. I need to move on, but secondly, what do I do if I have mechanical Christianity? Number one, remember. Number two, look at what he said. He said, repent. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen and repent. Repent. In other words, let that remembrance stir inside of you a a desire to change, to get that first love back in your life. Sit still long enough to to remember how it used to be and how it could be right now and and let that do a good work deep inside of your heart until you're ready to come to an altar and say, God, I'm sorry. Mechanical Christianity, that's, that's not what he expects out of his church. And we can do all the outside things properly, but if we've left our first love, it's a condemnation for that. Repent. There are some folks, there are some folks that ought to find their way to an altar tonight, and your prayer is really simple. God, I'm sorry. God, break my heart. Put back a love and a passion that, that is real like it used to be. Remember Repent, and then look at what he says, and do the first works. He's saying this, return. What do I do? Number one, I remember. Number two, I repent. Number three, I return. I return to the relational love that I have with Jesus Christ. You know, having a relationship is real simple, friend, with Christ, that it's really found in two things, in this book and on your knees. You can fall in love with Jesus again in this book and on your knees. I was a freshman in college and I I was enjoying my first year of college, my first few weeks of college. I had a vibrant walk with the Lord as a senior in high school, but I got to college and it was like unbelievable. Every chapel message, I was in church every day. I mean, it was great. It was awesome to be in college. Bible all the time, it was just great. I was driving down the Bishop Ford Freeway, coming from college home, and a song came on over the radio. I I believe the song was called The Last Blood, and our church here had produced it, and it was Mrs. Burke singing it, Barbara Burke, singing The Last Blood. Something about that song just stirred emotion in my heart, and, and it dawned on me that while I was enjoying college and as busy as I had ever been in the ministry, that relational love with Jesus that I found in an attic in our house in Blue Island, on my knees and in this book, that had evaporated and had been replaced with busyness, busyness, busyness. And I was hearing that song and I pulled off on the side of the road and I cried a bucket load of tears and I told the Lord, that's going to change. It's going to change. Repent. Remember, repent, return. And lastly, look at what he says in verse 5, or else. You say, Brother Judah, what if I don't take the time to get a relationship with Christ back the way that it used to be? What what, what if I what if I'm happy with just mechanical church? He says, or else? I will come unto thee quickly, will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Jesus says, if you don't get this first love back, and if you don't get it right, he says, I'm going to stop talking to you. And you'll have a church. but You'll have a church without me. That's what the Lord says. You'll have a church. You'll have an organization, but you won't have a church because a church is only a church. if Jesus calls it a church. And he said, I'll remove your candlestick. If you don't return to your first love. Jesus said, I'm not going to fool very long with a church that's not radically in love with me. So let me ask you a question, friends. If the Lord could write a letter to our church, if he could write a letter to you, I believe he would commend most everybody in this room. And he would say, you're a hard worker, and you're patient, and you endure sound doctrine, and you love me. And I believe he would say, all of that. And all the things on the outside, golden. But what about the things that only he can see? As he speaks authoritatively, as he speaks personally, intelligently, saying, I know you. Would he say that you do what you do out of a passion and a love for Jesus? Or has it become just what we're supposed to do? If you say that's me, then I wanna urge you tonight, friend. I wanna urge you to stop and remember, to repent and to return. And let's fall in love with Jesus. Hey, I believe we're in the fourth quarter, friend. I believe our time is short. And when he returns, let him find a church that is in love with him from the inside out.